Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, confirms it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Thanks, Jordan. Thank slant towards uh, our whole church family. But before I get into the text this morning, uh, a couple of things I want to announce. Uh, first of all, is just um, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we've taken back the name Resurrection Sunday, I guess. Um, found it out that Easter Sunday is actually kind of a, from a pagan name, so we're going to call it Resurrection from Sunday. You would know it as Easter Sunday, though. Uh, we're going to have a baptism uh, tank up here. Yes, we're going to get a horse trough, and we're going to fill it full of semi-warm water, um, and we're going to dunk people and uh, display the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in people's lives right over here. We'll probably try to avoid some of the power cords there, um, but so don't not get baptized because you're afraid of getting shocked. We'll figure that out. Uh, get baptized because you want to proclaim Jesus Christ in your life. If you've never been baptized, let me explain it very quickly like this. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that He is God, fully God, He's fully human, He's fully God, that He paid for your sins, that He died in your place, took the wrath of God on Himself in your place for your sins, and provided for you everything that He had earned through His perfect life, and you can say yes to that, you have all the information you need to get baptized. Jesus actually said um, that this is a response to what he has already done. So baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it does proclaim that you have become a Christian. And so if you'd like to do that, maybe you've been baptized as a child, but you're, you're like, no, that doesn't make sense to me because I didn't do that with my heart and I would like to get baptized again. Uh, I encourage you to, to come and get baptized. We already have three people, I think, uh, that are uh, thinking about it pretty seriously. And uh, it, it's real simple. We're going we're gonna to celebrate that. I mean, it's a perfect on Resurrection Sunday, right? Like, what could be better than actually watching some resurrections? Because if you're a good pastor, you don't just put the person down into the water. You bring them back out. Uh, this symbolizes the, the power of Jesus to bring us not just kill our sin, but actually bring us back to life as well. And so we're not going to leave you underneath the water. We're going to bring you back up. And we're going to, you know, we might fist bump you and say, hallelujah, this is awesome. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus in your life. And so if you feel that the Holy Spirit has been leading you to get baptized, I would like you to fill out maybe a connect card. Uh, there's some at the back there. Uh, maybe come and talk to me. Uh, talk to just about anyone. We're still all kind of small enough that we're all kind of connected. And, and chain of command, word will get through. Uh, but tell somebody you want to get baptized and we'll find a way to get you wet on Easter Sunday. Uh, sorry, Resurrection Sunday. My bad. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, I can't remember the second thing. So we'll just get into the text then. Um, 
Yeah. Let's go into Nehemiah and let's uh, let's just begin by this is a horrible segue, by the way. Uh, let's just transition now into talking about what we're going to talk about this this morning. We're in the seventh edition of the story of Nehemiah. We're going to take about four months uh, to do this. We're going to take a break. I think next week we start our break. Uh, or two weeks from now or something like that. Uh, look at your little card. That should help you out. And we're going to take some focus time and look at Nehemiah, or sorry, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to take a break from Nehemiah. And uh, so we're like halfway through in terms of chapters of Nehemiah, but there's still a long way to go and a lot to learn from Nehemiah. Um, anyone enjoying Nehemiah so far? Yeah, one, two, three, Yes. Awesome. There's four of us. That's great. Uh, I'm really loving this book. I'm loving for what it is doing in my life. For many of you, you know that this feels like this is the story of me and my family's life, like how we even came to plant the church. So a lot of this is really deeply personal and very easy to talk about for a long time. If you're new, you'll figure out what I mean in about 55 minutes. But Um, This is a very important book to what God has done in my life, how Jesus has called us to this city. And again, just to to say that this series is really about building a great city. We've called it Magna Civitas, which is me being really nerdy and wanting to use Latin phrases from when I was in college. But Magna Civitas actually means great city. And we think Calgary is a great city, but we think that if more people know about Jesus in our city, it would be even greater. And so we're going through the book of Nehemiah and watching uh, Nehemiah rebuild the walls. But if you've been here for a while, or let me just say this, that this story, although it looks like it's just about building a wall, it's really not just about building a wall. It's really about God building back his people again. See, for uh, a lot of years, uh, they had been taken captivity by Babylon. And this was a disciplinary action by God to his people. And he had sent them into a disciplinary action for about 140 years. And then after about 140 years, something snapped in Nehemiah's brain. I think it was the heart of Jesus that came into Nehemiah because something happened when he heard the news that the walls had been broken down. It wasn't new news for Nehemiah. It was very old, old, old news. It would be the equivalent of me saying, hey, we made it to the moon. And you'd be like, dude, that was like years ago, decades ago. I know it would be like getting super excited about that. Um, so this is what happened to Nehemiah and something snapped in his heart. And I believe it was the heart of Jesus coming into Nehemiah, the spirit of Jesus, before he even knew it was the spirit of Jesus and breaking Nehemiah's heart for his city. And God said, I want you to rebuild the wall, but really what I want you to do is rebuild my people. And I talked to a Bible scholar about that, and, and I don't think that's pressing him. I think that's what Nehemiah thought. I think that Nehemiah thought when he was rebuilding the wall, he was like, this is really preliminary to us rebuilding this great city. Why was building this great city so important to Nehemiah and to God? Because the town of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was the place where God wanted the gospel to ring out. He wanted to bring people to Jerusalem to show them his presence, his physical presence in the temple. That's where the temple is. It's in the city of David. And he wants the presence of God to ring out from Jerusalem. And one day, and we'll see, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that's exactly where the New Testament church begins. It's from Jerusalem and it goes out. So there's always this focus on Jerusalem. And so God says, you know, one day I'm going to have the gospel ring out. But before I do that, I want to attract attention to this city. And I can't attract attention to a city if it's not even a city. Right. If it's this little broken down wall filled with like there's a beautiful temple there, but nothing else. But you've been to those kind of towns where there's nothing. You see for lease signs everywhere on vacation this summer. Last summer, we went through Spokane, which had been for a long time. My uh, my grandfather's from there. My mom lived there for a season. Um, It was a believe it or not, it was a vacation hotspot for the rice savvies, if you can believe that. And when we drove through there, all we could see is lots of these buildings that just had for lease. It was like, oh, that's too bad. You know what that does? That makes you not want to go there anymore when you see all that kind of stuff. That's exactly what Jerusalem was like for many of the Jews. It was like, oh, wasn't that awesome when we had a, a really cool city and a great king? 
And Nehemiah says, well, let's do something about it. And he comes back to Jerusalem. He begins this rebuilding project. And he faces opposition almost right away. He prays a lot. You'll see this throughout the, the text. He prays a lot about this stuff. And he asks God, he says, God, dear God, please help me not have an emotional breakdown. And then he goes in and he talks to the king and asks for you know, a, a bazillion dollars and, and continues to rebuild the project. And all the way along, Nehemiah faces opposition, both from inside himself, from outside people, and from even the people who are doing the rebuilding project. And so we've seen Nehemiah kind of go through this, this whole book of rebuilding the wall, but really he's rebuilding the people. And so that's where we're at. But we, we would say that, that now we believe that we're not just trying to build a church in the city. This is not our goal. I don't know if you know that, we, we, which is kind of weird because we are a church in the city. We're called Urban Grace Church. You can't really avoid the fact that we're kind of about the city. But what are we about? We're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ actually will build this church, but he won't just use this church to reach the city. He will use lots of churches. He will use the gospel in lots of churches. And that's why we firmly believe in in uniting with other people who want to proclaim the gospel. We're not in competition with other churches. I think I'm learning this more and more. I'm sick and tired of my own sinful, sick heart that just thinks this is about us. This rebuilding of the city is not about us. It's not even about urban grace. It's not even about the churches that urban grace will plant. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God for salvation ringing out in our city. And we need lots and lots of churches. And we need lots and lots of missionaries. And you are a huge part of this. So this isn't a series about me. This is a series about you. And you being part of the missionary movement in our city to proclaim the gospel that can eventually reach the world, which is what Jesus said. Simple series, right? That's the light stuff. I'm not even in my introduction yet. So where's the text? So I better pray, first of all, that I can get this clear for you. And, and second of all, I don't take till four o'clock this afternoon to do it. Jesus, thank you so much for your grace and your spirit. I certainly need him today. I need him because I know that I can't connect the dots here this morning. I don't know everyone's life. I can't, even as I look out and recognize people that I see, Jesus, I can't connect the dots of where this is in their heart. And so I'm asking something miraculous, and that your Holy Spirit would come down and would bless us with your presence and your understanding for us today, for Urban Grace's people today. For the people that just showed up, this is their first time, second time, third time, and they really don't have a long history with our church. Jesus, I need your help to connect the dots for them. Help those of us who have heard this over and over, that that this is fresh. And that for all of us, the gospel is simply not some old news that we have to get out of the way so we can get to the good stuff. But the gospel is the heart of what we love and celebrate this morning, Jesus. Can't do this without you. Don't want to do this without you. Please don't let me do this without you. In your awesome name I pray. Amen. Okay. I'm just kidding about the introduction. I'm, I'm into my introduction, but let me... <laughs> Let me do, now you're like, whoa. What, what I'm going to do today is, is sometimes I like, go through the text. Like, I, I don't know, I'm not a very organized preacher. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, that I switch back and forth between the ways that I do things. Today just felt like, let's just go through the story, and then I'm going to share with you four things that I really felt that the text, that left out from the text. Um, and there are really four oppositions. And so I think it's important to kind of get this story uh, the, the story of Nehemiah is just a tremendous story to have in your brain and, and to kind of have in your backpack as you, uh, as you move through the Christian life and you begin to see some of these things happen in your own life. So let's just kind of go through this story. So what do we have? Where are we? Well, we're in chapter 6, like I said, where, where this is the second time essentially that Nehemiah has really faced opposition. Well, it's not the second time he's faced opposition. It's the second time we really see him face Opposition. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. And these two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, I'm just calling them San and Tob. These guys are at Nehemiah incessantly. Like it's unbelievable how pestery these guys are. Have you noticed that? Like it's, I got tired of saying Sanballat and Tobiah in my notes. 
I was like, is there another way that I can say this name? Because these guys are everywhere. And it seems like no matter where they are, they're just pesky people, men that just, they just won't leave you alone. They're the ones who, they're, like they would be flooding your inbox with these, you know, forwards, like if you don't click on this, you don't really love God, that kind of forward that you get in your inbox. Anyone have those, like 18,000 of those in your delete box now? Um, that you're not really that spiritual if you don't like this on Facebook. They're those guys, right? They're those kind of people that just, they pester at you again and again and again. Now, these guys are about, they don't live in Jerusalem. They don't really live within Jerusalem. They live about 27 miles away. Um, about, they live exactly 27 miles away. Um, and so they're kind of, they're kind of in the, they wouldn't be in the suburbs, but they would be a day's journey away. So, uh, close enough that they could find out what's going on, but far enough away that you couldn't throw rocks at them, really. And, and that it took a while to travel to them. And so what are these guys doing? Well, they hear that the progress is going really well. They think, you just put a bug in Nehemiah's ear and he's going to quit. The people are going to quit. He's going to have no way to rally. These people have mortgaged their fields and their homes to do this. You know, there's just no way that this progress is going to go forward. But they're starting to get serious about the way that they oppose the work. They start to get serious because he starts sending letters. Ooh. He's sending serious letters now. Comes again. One after another. We, ser- we hear uh, um, uh, San and Tob. They send this, this, uh, this letter to Nehemiah and they basically say, Hey dude, can we meet? Can we go out for coffee? I just, want to, I just want to share some things with you. You ever have those kind of coffees? Someone's like, I got something on my heart. I really want to share it with you. You're like, no, you want to criticize me and you want to do it privately. That's what you want to do. That's happened to me before, by the way. I don't know if there, that's ever happened to you. The boss is like, can I see you after in my office? You're like, this is bad, right? This is not a good meeting. And you do everything you can to avoid this kind of meeting. And so Nehemiah senses this. Now, it looks pretty innocent, doesn't it? It's like, hey, can we sit down, have coffee, maybe have a town hall meeting? And Nehemiah's like, no, no, I am not going to meet you guys. First of all, where's Ono? That's way in the suburbs. I'm not leaving the city to do this. Second of all, I know you guys. I know what you're up to. I know what you're like. Your whole history here has been constant pestering. And all of a sudden you're on my side. Nice try. Nice try. I just about had as one of my points, you can't believe everything you hear, because I think that's, that's what's in this text. Nehemiah hears this, but he's, he's discerning. He's thinking carefully through, like, no, no, I've got to have kind of more information from these guys if I'm going to go and meet with them. And so what does he say? He sends a letter back. Now, this is how it worked. Um, how it worked was you send a sealed letter so that no one could read it, and you sent it with a messenger, right? You sent it with a servant. So it, this is before email. You guys remember what it was like before me, email, right? When you actually had to write on a piece of paper, put a stamp on it, and send it. You remember that, some of you? Those of you also have large tape collections. So this is, this is how it went. This is how it went. So Nehemiah sends a messenger back and like, is, dude, no. <laughs> come come, come and. To the plains of Ono, Nehemiah. No. What does he do? He does that four times. Now, again, where's Ono? This is about 27 miles away from Jerusalem. And actually what it is, is it's a place that's not really Persian and it's a place that's not really Jewish. So we think Sambalat and Tobiah are, they're kind of Jewish, but not totally. They work kind of for the Persians. Nehemiah officially works for the Persians, but he has total blessing from the Persian king to rebuild the wall. But the Sambalat and Tobiah, they're kind of, you ever know people who straddle the fence? They're kind of in this group and they're in that group. And they kind of sit there and they're not really for anyone and they're trying to keep everyone happy and everything's always political and they don't really have very many friends because they can't stay loyal to either one. This is Sambalat and Tobiah. And so they're like, hey, let's meet in a neutral spot. Nehemiah's like, I'm not meeting in a neutral spot. That's the worst possible idea I can think of. No, 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 no. 
Four times he says that. The fifth time, he actually gets a letter. So this is when we, we begin to see um, that Sambalat and Tobiah are actually starting to lie to Nehemiah. They're starting to make things up. So this is stop, like this is not criticism anymore. This is like lying. You've probably had this from one of your friends too, right? Or former friends. Someone's like, they don't really like you, so they just kind of dig at you, and then all of a sudden they just say something that's not actually true about you. I've actually had this as a pastor in this church. I've had people that just make up lies about what our church is about. You know, there's first like, I don't really buy into how you're doing your church and who you're connected with and that kind of stuff. And then it just gets into lying. Oh, you're like this. Oh, you this. It happens. And it happens from people that you think are on your side or you think that have your best interest in mind and they don't. And so the fifth time that Sanballat sends a letter, what he does is he sends an open letter. This is exactly like posting something openly on Facebook, right? There's that private message thing where discerning people use if you want to say something privately. And then there's a place where you say something privately, but you do it in a public space where everybody can see it. And your purpose in that is not to like tell somebody something. It's to like get them so that everyone that they know and are connected to and have liked know about this. And are embarrassed by this. And this is exactly the ploy. So he sends this open letter. Meaning anyone can read this on the way. So the guy's like walking with the letter like this. He's like, hey, you want to read about how stupid Nehemiah is? How about you? You want to read how stupid Nehemiah is? And how dumb he is to reject what's going on? And and how you shouldn't follow this guy? Hey, how about you? That's exactly 27 miles this Servant is carrying this letter openly saying, anyone who wants to read it and see how silly this guy is, let me know and I'll let you read it. And this is what the letter says. Nehemiah, I hear that you really want to be king. Nehemiah, I hear that people are trying to make you king. Nehemiah, I hear that in your history, you've got a history of wanting, you think the Messiah is going to come through you. And I think you want to be that king. And if you're that king, you're going to destroy Persia. And if that's true, then you're in disobedience to Persian law. And if that's true, look out. And what does Nehemiah say? Dude, what are you smoking? That's not what I'm about. I'm about God. I'm about rebuilding the city. I'm not about rebelling against Persia. I'm about what God has called me to do. Sends, you know, I don't know if he sends back this open letter, but I wouldn't put it past him. And I love the verse to go back to what Nehemiah says, how he confronts it. And he says, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. You've got to underline that in your Bibles, right? Okay? Or you've got to write it down. And if you don't write it down, talk to Sarah Higgins after. She will have written this down for you in her notes, okay? She's right here, okay? This is our resident scribe. So anything important you've missed in the sermon, you just go straight to Sarah and she will have this written down. Sarah, write this down. I cannot come down. I am doing a great work, okay? Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And this is almost the response that Nehemiah has the whole way through. Sorry, guys, I'm doing a great work. Now, that's either really, really, really arrogant or he just knows who, what kind of God he serves. I, I almost think like Nehemiah is almost tempted as he goes through this to go, you know what, it would be good for me to go out to Ono and show these guys a thing or two. Who knows, maybe I'll get to punch these guys in the throat. Later on, he actually scalps somebody. So I wouldn't put it past Nehemiah to do this. Seriously, this guy is not afraid to get in the octagon with these guys. So you might think that that's a pretty good way. I'm, I'm just going to go up for I'm going to tell them what I think. You ever done this? Someone says, like, some, so-and-so wants to go up for coffee. And you're like, I shouldn't really, but I just want to go there and just tell them what I think. It's like, no, don't. Don't even give them that. Because you know what's going to happen. This is a trap. And so there's Nehemiah. There's Nehemiah. It's a trap. 
That doesn't work. So they move on. Now we just get straight up confrontation and Nehemiah starts pushing back. And this is what happens. Somehow, San and Tob are able to pay off the local pastor in the local church, also known as the priest in the temple. Okay, that's how we would understand it. And so we find out that somehow he had paid them off. He hired them. This also happens, by the way, literally, it seems, where Satan seems to hire other pastors to work for him. And they will come after you and tell you you're being stupid. You're being narrow. The gospel's not really that important. Don't preach the cross. People don't like it. Don't people, don't tell people they're sinners. Because they won't come to your church. Part of me wants to say, show up to Urban Grace and tell people they're sinners every single Sunday and we can't keep up. But this is actually the kind of thing that happens. They San, San and Tob hire this local pastor. And what the local pastor says is in that time, in that place, in that culture, according to Old Testament law, not everyone could go to church. You could go to the outside of church. You could go in the foyer, but you couldn't go inside to the sanctuary. And that's what happened. So people would go, they'd mill around in the sanctuary, the outer temple courts, and then only the priests, only the pastors could go in and worship for you. Like, let's just sidebar here. Hallelujah for the new covenant, hey? That you don't have to do it that way. Can you imagine if I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach my face off, and you guys close those doors and stay in the lobby and hope that I worship well for you. Like, that's what the new covenant has done for us. Okay, that's, that one's for free. Back to our story. So, so this hired pastor actually says, Hey, Nehemiah, these guys are probably going to kill you. Why don't you come out and hide in my office? Now, Nehemiah understands that he's being tricked. Because what would happen is, is Nehemiah, if he listened to them, what he would do is he would literally go into the temple and everyone would say, you're sinning against God. And they would start bringing all kinds of bad, a, a bad name. So Nehemiah's sin would kind of cloud his reputation. And if his reputation was clouded enough, what could happen? They could stop rebuilding the wall. This is actually a very uh, strategic. Okay, Satan is a deceiver. Our enemy is a deceiver. He's our adversary, but he's very smart. He knows and understands very clearly if he can take a leader down, he can take a lot of other people with him. Have you ever seen this happen in evangelical history where one leader falls into sin and entire churches collapse? It's happened in our city, by the way. There are some churches that are just now recovering from moral collapse of a, of a pastoral leader. This happens all the time in all kinds of cultures, in all kinds of ways. And it happens often because leaders like myself don't understand that we stand in complete opposition to the enemy and, and those who hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm learning more and more this week even. I thought, I'm, you know, I'm an idiot for not asking you guys to pray more for me. Seriously, that's not an arrogant thing to ask. That's saying, you guys, what you have here, if, if Satan can take me out, he can do some serious damage to urban grace and the gospel in our city. Then I must humbly come before God and say, I need the prayers and protection of our God. I need to be like Nehemiah and be able to say, no, I will not get caught up in the sin. I will stay away from it. And this is a shortcut sin, and we'll get this into. This is, this is, this is the people asking Nehemiah to shortcut his way. See, they understand that he's holy. They understand that he wants to serve God, but they say, if you sin this way, you can shortcut and get safety. And Nehemiah basically says, look it, if someone's going to kill me, sinning against God is not going to protect me. There's no way. Last week, we, we actually talked about this whole thing, that if we, we talked about generosity... And we talked about the fact that as the people rebuild the temple, what got in the way is some terrible, ungenerous people who are sinning badly against their own people. 
And Nehemiah basically said, if we rebuild this wall on the backs of poor people, we don't win the war. And he calls them out on their sin. And I think there's so many shortcut sins in our life that in order to do what God has called us to do, but not face the hard things like Nehemiah did, we, do, we take shortcuts. Okay, I'll get into that. I'm re-preaching the last part of my sermon. So let me get into the things I've learned. And we see at the very end, Nehemiah, hey, God, you see what I'm doing. You know what these guys are up to. You know what I'm facing. You know how I want to obey you. Please remember that. Remember what I'm doing. Remember this is about your glory. I think Nehemiah partially says it for his own sake. Remember God, because I sure need to remember what I'm all about. So what are the four things that we can learn here? Well, there's four oppositions that I see in the text. The first opposition is distraction. First opposition is distraction. I see in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul talks to a young church planter, Timothy, and he, he sends him the church of Ephesus, and he says, take care of it. And his instruction to, to Timothy is, um, you are a soldier of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, your job is to protect the gospel. And he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I actually wrote that in the front of my Bible. Because it's so important for me as a person, even in what I do, that not that there's not other good things. What's the civilian pursuit? Is that a, is that a bad thing? Is that a thing against the army? No. The civilian pursuit is just something else that distracts you from what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be a soldier. He said, avoid getting distracted by all the good things in life. So that you can focus in on the great thing that you have been called to. Jesus, Jesus had so many people come to him to distract him. I often wonder how he did it, humanly speaking. He must have had to have had the Holy Spirit in him, is, all, is, is my only response. He had to be led by the Spirit. There's no way you could have the power of God at your fingertips like Jesus did. And, and not get distracted by all the good things. I mean, do you know how many thousands of people probably came and got turned away from being healed? I mean, it's just remarkable. And over and over and over again, we see Jesus having to do this. In the Gospel of John, we actually see Jesus having to say it seven times, my time has not yet come. When his mom is at a, a party and is like, um, oh, we need some more wine. My boy, Jesus can do something about this. Let's go, Jesus. Can you turn this water into wine? Jesus actually says, my time has not yet come. Now, he does it anyways. I'm not even going to get into that. But what's interesting is he says that my time has not yet come because I think the author John wanted to say there were lots of things that Jesus could have done. But he did not get distracted by the things that took him away from what God had called him to and the plan that God had established for his life. And so I think there's two ways we can get distracted. First of all, simply thinking that we have to respond to all the good things in our life. Like, could Nehemiah have gone in and confronted Tobiah? Could he have surrounded people and said, hey, a group of us, we're going to go out and we're going to like, we're going to confront these guys. We're going to do it like Matthew 18. We're going to take one of us. And then if he doesn't listen, we're going to take two of us. And then if he doesn't listen, we're going to take three of us. And then if they don't listen, we're going to put up a web page and say, stay away from these guys. I don't think that would have been a bad thing to do. But it wasn't what God called Nehemiah to do. And he had to say no to it. How many times? Anyone? Wrong. Five. Good try. <laughs> Five times he said no. Four times in closed letters, once in an open letter. You will have to say no to things a lot of times. I'll tell you a very quickly experience. When I was in Bowdoin and I was pastoring this church and I knew this is what God had called me to. And there was another church. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, it was a larger church. 
It was a church that was offering me more money, blatantly. It was a church that was offering me a home. It was a church that was offering me a city, which at the time seemed quite lucrative. Bowden's about 1,200 people. I literally had to say no to that church four times. I had an elder, a search committee member, show up in my church on Sunday morning. And I had to say, I don't think God's calling me to your church. This happens. Was it a good opportunity? Honestly, it was a great opportunity. It was a great opportunity. And there are things in your life, friends, that are really good for you to do. Very good to do. But you cannot simply do the things that seem good to do in your life. Like, I, we were talking about this, Leslie and I were just talking about this, because we're struggling through how do we do mission. And there's, you know, honestly, when you pray for Jesus to open your eyes to mission opportunities to talk about the gospel and to integrate the gospel, what will you find? You will find there are way too many opportunities for you to do. That's what you will find. And you will find that you're not really on mission unless you have more than you can handle. If you can say, you know what, I've done everything that God has asked me to do all the time, I don't think you're doing everything that God has asked you to do. Or I I don't think you're being aware of the other opportunities. I should rephrase that. Because there should always be more. Like seriously, think about it for a second. Does it overwhelm you that 95% of our city, maybe 90% of our city doesn't really love Jesus? You think that's on your back? You think you can do that? There's no way you can do that individually. I don't even think individually you can take care of 1% of that. So the opportunities you have will always be greater than what you should actually do. And this is why you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. So now you have a reason to like be close to the Spirit, ask for the Spirit to fill you. Be in your Scripture so you know what the Spirit says so that you don't just go like, I don't know. What should I do? Whatever seems right and good. No, that is the worst possible way. Because do you know what will happen? Within a year, you'll be in the hospital with a heart attack. I'm sure of it. Because it's just so overwhelming. You just can't handle it. And this is what Nehemiah said. He knows what God has called him to do. He says, no, I can't go out there. God has called me to this great work. Sounds good, but it's not. We even see this in business principles. Anyone heard of the book Good to Great? Good to Great? A few of you? It's a a book that's changed lots of people's mind. Bestseller. uh, Amazing book. Many churches actually have been using it. And one of the principles, principles in there is all great companies have this culture of discipline. And what is that culture of discipline? The ability to say yes. No, that's not the culture of discipline. The culture of discipline is the ability to say no says right in the book, many of you have a to-do list. Some of you need to have a not-to-do list. Right in, like, this is a business, even if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, this is a business principle. And this is why it's so important to know exactly what we're called to. And we have to know this. This is so autobiographical for us because, like, it's cheaper to go somewhere else. To meet somewhere else. It's easier to live somewhere else. It's easier to do ministry somewhere else. It's easier to advertise somewhere else. But this is what Jesus has called us to. And until He calls us away, we're not leaving the city. It's that simple. What do you need to say no to, friends? Think about this in your life. What do you need to say no to? Not what do you need to say yes to. What do you need to say no to? In order to do what Jesus has asked you to do. Secondly, Satan is out to annoy and distract. This is, this is fascinating for me. Some of us think about this idea of um, it, that the spiritual oppression is, is the dark demonic dreams. And it's the, um, it, which it is. Or that it's, you know, all those terrible, horrible movies, which it could be. 
I think the majority of what Satan does is he just annoys us. Honestly, I really believe that. I really believe one of the primary ways that Satan um, just gets to his people is he just does what my four-year-old does. Dad, 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 mom, 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 mom. How many parents, that's, that's your experience. Right? When do you blow your top? When your kid makes a huge mess? No, but when they do that, it's hard to handle. And yet you can love your kids so dearly. I've seen this. Uh, this is not my kids, just. This is everyone's kids. I've seen it. Every, it's, this is other kids to my kids. Right? I think this is what Satan's like. Trev, Trev, do this. Trev, do that. Trev, do this. Trev, do that. Go here. Do that. Meet that person. Say that thing. Don't say that thing. So it's like, ah, get away from me. What's distracting you? Don't think of spiritual oppression or spiritual uh, attacks as just these glaringly obvious things that you just got to pray the blood of Jesus over. I think the reason why they don't happen more often is because Satan knows this is really obvious. Like this is a big banner that says dark, evil, not from God. But you know how Satan can distract? He can say, hey, Trev, you know what? You could uh, save a pile of money if you guys left the church, left the, the city. Boy, if you moved, you could lower rent and get bigger space. And wouldn't you love to have an extra room and not have your study in your bedroom? Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. And it's distracting, friends. And it's camouflaged. So it's deadly. And if you don't know, this is why you've got to go back to Nehemiah. If you're confused about how do you get there, you've got to go back to Nehemiah 1. You've got to pray. Jesus, break my heart for something. Give me some sort of vision. Snap my heart in two if you have to for this. I have to figure out what you have called me to do. And this is, it's like Jacob in Genesis. God tries to speak to him and Jacob like gets in a wrestling match with God because he's like, I'm not leaving until I know what you're going to do. And God's like, I'm going to tell you and then I'm going to like bust your hip. So you remember every time you walk, you're like, wrestle with God, wrestle with God, wrestle with God, right? But he's also going to know, know exactly what I'm called to, know exactly what I'm called to. Every time he walks. Ask for God. Be prepared to get your hip busted. Because Jesus will do that. He did it for me. What are you distracted by? Second opposition, criticism. This will happen. This particularly happens when you try to do anything bold. You'll have this from family. You'll get criticism from family. You'll get criticism from husbands and wives. You'll get criticism from parents. You'll get criticism from people that you think really love you. And this is how that criticism will come. I don't know if you're totally cut out for that. These are the people that they really believe that they know God's will for your life. You'll get, you'll get, you might even get criticism from me. You have to hear from God so that when that criticism comes, you know exactly. You know, this happens to Jesus all the time. I mean, all you have to do is read all these principles, all this stuff is found in the New Testament with, with just Jesus' life. Because there's, there's criticism from the outside. So Jesus is doing his thing. Who criticizes him? I'll tell you who the Pharisees. What do they say? Dude hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He's a drunkard and a sinner. You rub shoulders with these guys. You only get that reputation if you actually do that. You don't like accidentally get that reputation. I'm thankful Jesus stood up to the criticism. He says, yeah, but if I don't hang out with sinners, I won't gather anyone. You obviously aren't interested in me. So I'm going to go after the people who actually are interested. These people are low-hanging fruit. And he faces the criticism. He knows the plan that the Father has talked to him. See, this is the real temptation, I believe, that's found in the desert 
when the devil is trying to tempt him, we, we always think it's just about food. It's actually about food, but it's really more than just food. So when Jesus is in the desert and he's getting tempted by Satan, and Satan's like, hey, how about those rocks? Turn that into food. Jesus is like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey the word of God. And he's like, takes him up to the mountain. He's like, hey, if you toss yourself over this, uh, doesn't your scriptures, doesn't your word, the word you wrote, doesn't it say the angels will come and pick you up? And Jesus is like, I'm not here to test God. And then he takes him up on the mountaintop and he says, everything could be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And I bet Jesus in his brain was kind of going, it is mine, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to bypass this. If I was Jesus, I would be like, Satan, I could take you out so fast right now. But that's not the plan. And Satan's like, come on, come on, bypass the plan. Go for it, go for it. I dare you. Jesus doesn't even play his games. And you will face those kind of temptations in your life. Where something will come in, it'll be criticism that distracts. Criticism. Who is criticizing you? Why are they criticizing you? What's going on? Is it real criticism? Is it the kind of criticism you can learn from, or is it the kind of criticism? This isn't this isn't, by the way, like a message so that you can go out and do whatever you want and like no one can tell you what to do. That's not what I'm saying. Please, stop that right now. Stop taking notes if that's you. It's not what this is about. This is about not getting, not allowing criticism to take you away from what God is calling you to do. Thirdly, what kind of opposition do we have when we have fear? How many of us struggle with courage? Anyone? The rest of you lie. Okay, we'll deal with lying next week. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, this, is, this is my primary sin, my friends. This is my primary sin. I am afraid of what people think of me. Way too much. I think I'm through this until someone comes and says something and then I realize it just rears its ugly head. And this is, we, we see very clearly who Nehemiah fears. He doesn't seem to fear the people that can only take his life. He fears the God who can change his life and save his life. See that in the text there? Their hands will drop from work and will be not done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. He's like, you can distract me, you can pull me away, but only God can really give me the power to do this. I don't need to defeat you. I need to listen to God. And I I love this about Nehemiah. He shows us what it means to fear God. Did you know that the scripture actually says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, let me clarify what this means. If you think fear of the man, fear of man or fear of woman means actually fear of woman is probably more dangerous. Um, if you think this means being afraid of someone, then you need to just broaden your understanding according to Scripture. What Scripture says when you when it says fear of man is you care more about what people think than what about what about God's thinks. You will, you will do anything to make sure that people think well of you as opposed to doing anything to make sure that God is happy with you. Now, this again is not a workspace thing. This is this issue of, of who really do you respect? Who really's opinion? Do you care, do you care about Jesus' opinion of you or do you care about your family's opinion of you? Do you care about Jesus' opinion of what you're doing or do you care about your bosses or your friends or your band members or your Facebook friends or your Twitter followers? If you want to find out what you fear, ask yourself some of these questions. Do you have trouble saying no to people? Someone comes up and says, oh, it's a great idea, and you're like... I don't have time to do that, but I'm afraid that if I say no, I'll disappoint them. So I won't say no. I'll say yes and then disappoint them because I have to ask for forgiveness because I can't do it. That happens to me a lot. It used to happen a lot more. And I had to learn 
who I was really fearing, who I really cared about. Ask yourself this. Do you second-guess your decisions when someone throws something your way? You make a decision, someone says this, you're like, oh, no idea now. You probably struggle with fear of people. By the way, if you don't struggle with fear of people, I really do believe you're just not paying very close attention to your life. Because there will be some place in your life that you really care. And this, it works both ways. You find yourself that you're a slave to what other people say about you. That your emotions are completely driven by what someone thinks of you or the way you dress or the way that you look or the way that you think or what you, where you go. I mean, it's, this shows up for me in the weirdest places. It's almost embarrassing talking about it. I'm a big, like, for those of you who don't know me, my other nickname around here is 100% Trev. Because I seem to like, when I get into something, it's like 100% I get into it. I can't just kind of do it. Do you know what seems to drive some of that? I don't want to look like a bandwagon jumper. I don't want to appear to anyone like I'm halfway there. So if I like, you know, the CFL versus the NFL, I've got to make sure that my lifestyle matches the CFL and my clothing matches the CFL and my daughter likes the CFL and that just rises up in me and I've got to do everything I can. Why? So that I don't look like a bandwagon jumper, so that I don't look like somebody who's just like, oh, I'm just halfway in. As if that really mattered. Like, who cares? But for some reason, I can find myself a slave to those things so quickly if I'm not paying attention to it. So when I say, like, you need to deal with this, really, I'm grateful that you're here while I get my therapeutic talk in about this to myself. This is my number one sin. I constantly deal with this lion of sin that crouches at my door and says, do you really care about what God thinks? Don't you care more about what other people think? Here's what God thinks of you. Romans 5.8 You don't have to do anything to get God's love. You don't have to do anything to get Christ to die for you. You don't have to get anything for Him to forgive you. He did it. He did not do that on the basis of your movement toward Him. He did that on the basis of His movement toward you. Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us while what? Anyone? While yet we were still sinners. Before we could offer Jesus anything, He died for us. (laughs) Amen. Before we could have a guilt-free life, before we could serve Him, before we could show Him honor, He died for us and, and designed a mission for us. So if you ever are scared about what Jesus thinks of you, remember Romans 5, 8. Before I could offer Jesus anything, He gave me everything. I don't need anything else. Truthfully. And some of you right there, you just made an exception. I know you did. In your head. Accept this. I need this. Take that exception, look carefully at it. That may very well be an idol for you. Okay, look deep. Because that's what you really care about. You know, fill in this blank. I can't live without. The Bible says you don't need anything beyond Jesus and that He's given you everything. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be blessed with that or feel that. We feel that all the time. We feel blessed for what Jesus has given us beyond salvation. But who do you fear? Who do you really care about? And how do you need to hear and apply the gospel? I don't need that because Jesus has supplied everything for me. Fourthly, opposition number four, shortcut sins. I'm not just going to say sins here. I'm going to say shortcut sins. And here's why. Because these are sins that, like Nehemiah, are shortcuts. They're shortcuts. 
It's not a blatant sin. It's not like, should I have four wives or should I just have one? <laughs> That's kind of an obvious one. Even our government is like, eh, only one. Right? Should I steal or should I not steal? That's not the kind of decision we're talking about. Those ones, again, are these really blatant ones. These are the ones like, okay, I'm going to get bold here. Jesus asks us to give this and we're like, what, what, hey, what if I serve with my time instead of giving my money? Jesus, how about that? <laughs> Little do you know, I just found a way to bypass what you've called me to do. Yeah, it gets personal, doesn't it? Some of you are like, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> Again, this is, this is me. My shortcut sin is my Sabbath. Okay? Is that's keeping the Sabbath day holy a Ten Commandment or not? It is, right? I don't treat it like a Ten Commandment. I treat it like one of the other laws. I'd never do that with murder. I'd never be like, you know, this year I'm going to cut down on my murder. I'd never say that. This year, oh, I'm just, this week, especially that one day, I am not going to steal. You know? And if someone catches me stealing, it's like, look it, I haven't stole all these days. I'd never do that with those things. But for some reason, I think that God's Sabbath is a suggestion and not a command. And so what I do is I just bypass it. I know you set aside six days, but Jesus, have you really seen? I've been working out. I can handle this. I can do this. I don't need this like everyone else needs it. And you know how Jesus told me I was sinning? He put me in the hospital. Now I feel like I'm getting healthy, and you know what I'm tempted to do again? I'm tempted to work on my Sabbath. And what's driving that? Here's the idol. I'm afraid of being without. And that's what drove that. I was, it was like Sabbath is designed to like rip that trust of me out and put the trust of God in. It's like one day a week, clean out your heart, clean out the cupboard of idols you have, and remember that I am in charge. And when we don't Sabbath, here's what happens. We never open that cupboard and see where our idols are. And so what I was doing was saying, Jesus, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to... And you, here's what's crazy. I planted the church on the back of that. I don't think Jesus was in any way pleased. My coach said to me, don't you dare short circuit this. Don't you dare try to get people to break their Sabbaths to plant a church. Don't you dare glorify this. This is not a win in the kingdom of God. I'm ashamed of this. I'm learning how deeply untrusting this is of my soul and how much I have got so much to do. So I'm, I'm going to answer that. Where are you shortcut sinning? Well, my Sabbath. But where are you shortcut sinning? Where are you bypassing something that God has clearly asked you to do and obey so that you can actually pretend to obey God in another area? I'm going to sin all I want, but I am going to obey him and read my word. Read your word. I'm going to disobey him with my finances, but I am going to obey him in my attendance on Sunday. I'm going to disobey him with my attitude towards uh, my co-workers, but on Sunday I'm not going to do that. Where are you shortcutting? Where is that showing up? And I leave with this. If we don't leave with the gospel, if you hear just that, I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll go home and you will try and work harder at your own life. You will take all of these things and you'll say, I'm a bad person and I don't deserve to serve God and you can't really use me and I've got so much work to do before I can do anything. And here's what the gospel says. The gospel says it's done. You didn't get in to the kingdom of God through your lack of sin. You got in in spite of your lack of sin. You simply said when Jesus begged you and called you and said, friend, come and join my kingdom. Friend, come and eat at my table. And you said, I'm a sinner. And he said, friend, I, I, I paid for that. I got you a clean robe. I don't know what to wear. That's okay. I'll provide what you need to wear. It's a white robe. Clean with sin. Yeah, but I didn't pay for it. Yeah, I paid for it. Yeah, but I don't deserve it. I know you don't deserve it. You're not here because you deserve it. You're here because I love you. 
Yeah, but then you're going to have to pay for my sin. That's fine. I loved you so much. That's what I wanted to do. So don't you dare leave this service without hearing the great love that Jesus has for you in spite of this. His love for you brought you here so that you could hear some things in your life that will help you move forward with your life. This should not bring you to despair. This should give you life because you say, even if I'm at this place next week, Jesus will still love me. Even if I don't move forward, Jesus will not remove his spirit from me. He will not be next week going, okay, did you guys deal with your idols? Because you're not coming into my house if you're not having dealt with them. No, he's loving and gracious and honest. And if that means something to you, if you believe that and if you are thankful, then I want you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is our family meal. This is what we celebrate every Sunday. And why do we do this? Because every Sunday I think we need to hear it, don't you? We need to hear that Jesus' grace is so great. How much does Jesus care about you being one of his children? That much. He died, he bled and died for you. How much does God care about your growth? He died so that he could send his spirit to you. And put you on mission. And so some of you actually, I'm going to call you to repent of your sin. But some of you need to smile. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And take like a good meal. Ever had a good meal and you're just like, oh, that's so good. It's like, mm, I'm full. I'm almost sick I'm full. That's how some of us should be as we take communion. I'm so full of the grace of God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, here's what I would say. Don't partake of this meal. Now, that may sound strange to you, but here's why I'm saying this. Because there's nothing magical in these things. You don't wash away your sin by taking this. Your sin has been washed away by Jesus. You proclaim it. So if you're not a Christian, please don't partake. Please become a Christian and then partake. How do you become a Christian? You simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of grace. You are the Savior that I want. Become a Christian, take, and the rest of us, let's just respond to Jesus and hear about his grace as Tom and his team leads us.